Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at the New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From The New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. Public assassinations, weapons of mass destruction in international airports, open threats of nuclear war. Is the strategy of North Korea so crazy that it just might work? And after months of polarizing talk about illegal immigration and what to do about it, President Trump puts forward a plan for legal immigration and credits Canada with the idea. It's Thursday, March 2nd. Entering Kuala Lumpur Airport in the grey suit, this CCTV appears to show Kim Jong-nam. He continues into the busy departures hall. If you watch extremely closely, a figure wearing a white top seems to approach him from behind and grab him. The person in white throws their arms over the victim's head and applies pressure before walking away. Kim Jong-un's estranged half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, allegedly murdered. Kim Jong-nam was the portly playboy and half-brother of current North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Now to a breaking headline overseas, authorities making new arrests in the assassination of the North Korean leader's half-brother. Targeted by female assassins, reportedly the victim of a spy movie-style hit. One of the women claimed she was tricked into attacking Kim believing that she was taking part in some kind of television prank. He wasn't considered much of a threat to his younger brother, except, experts say, maybe in Kim Jong-un's own mind. A brazen assassination that many people here believe could only have been ordered by North Korea's leader. By now you know the story, and it's almost an unbelievable one. According to the interpreters Max Fisher and Amanda Taub, that's exactly how North Korea wants you to see it. Let's take the assassination apart a little bit. In what ways was this carried out for maximum impact, step by step? So Kim Jong-nam was in the departures lounge in the airport in Kuala Lumpur. He was getting on a flight to Macau. And two women came up to him, one after another. And from the CCTV footage, it looks like they smeared something on his face. They killed him using VX, which is a classified as a weapon of mass destruction by the United Nations, a super advanced chemical weapon to kill him in the middle of this airport, which is like not what VX is for. <laughs> what is VX for? Uh, I mean, it's it's I don't know that it's actually been used in a large scale way in a war, but it is meant to be like the 21st century version of what mustard gas was in World War One. It's one of the deadliest chemical agents ever created. 
Experts say VX is one of the most potent chemical weapons. It can kill almost instantly. Paralysis, respiratory failure, and death can occur within minutes. Like a weapon of war that you would use to cause mass destruction and chaos on the order of the size of cities, but they deployed it to kill exactly one person, which is um, bananas. Yeah, um, and so what they believe happened in this attack is that it wasn't pre-mixed, essentially, VX, that it was two different components, which each on their own were not deadly, were maybe even harmless, but that when they were mixed together, which in this case happened on the victim's face when two different people smeared it on him, wow. they mixed together and turned into potent VX and killed him. What does this assassination appear to be on the surface? So I think on the surface, this really plays into the idea that a lot of people have of North Korea as this really kind of crazy, irrational, unhinged regime almost. And this is something that comes up a lot in pop culture, where the North Korean leaders are portrayed as these kind of cartoon evil figures who are, you know, just sort of larger than life and nuts. If a billion people across the earth and in my own country must be burned to prove it, then my worthiness as a king will be demonstrated. Um, but that, I think, is a pretty misleading perception. The two things that people will tell you are that this country's leadership are irrational, wacky, cannot be trusted, totally nuts. And that they're super weak and they have this shambles, barely functional weapons program. And it's actually exactly backwards. Uh, this leadership is super rational, which is how they've managed to stay alive, despite being in this terrible geopolitical position and much weaker than their all enemies. And their weapons programs are not sophisticated in the level of the United States or Russia, but for a country that small, super sophisticated, super threatening. And the really key thing, they are willing to use it abroad, internationally, in some place as sensitive as an international airport, which is designed to freak us out and, frankly, I think should. Yeah, I mean, this was basically a really gruesome, deadly, like, military press release. This was a message to the hmm. world saying, we can do this, we will do this, and uh, everyone paid attention. This press release, Amanda, that you mentioned. Yes. It's a great coinage. Who is it directed to? Is it directed to the citizens of North Korea? Is it directed to the elected leaders in foreign countries? This is a way of basically saying that any other country that would be thinking of trying to mess with the North Korean regime, basically, should think twice about doing so. I, I mean, schoolyard metaphors are totally overused in international relations, and I hate when people do it, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, <laughs> if you imagine, like, North Korea is the, like, tiniest, scrawniest kid on the playground, nobody is looking out for him or her. And he is picking fights with every other kid on the playground, including kids who are like 10 times his height and could quash him like a bug if he wanted to. So the way that he is going to deal with and manage that threat is by putting like a little bit of glass in the food of these bigger kids or like... Is that a little too intense? Like you me a terrifying a elementary school. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's that's the idea is to act like so outside the norms of how kids manage in the elementary school that everybody is like, look, we don't like this little Kim Jong-un kid. Uh, we would really rather that he was not around. We have the power to squash him and we would kind of like to do that. But you know what? It's not worth getting glass in our food. So 
real quickly, let's step back for a minute. What is it about the history of North Korea that we have to understand in order to properly contextualize this moment and this assassination? Right. The thing that you need to understand to get why they do this is it's all about internal political legitimacy. South Korea is much richer now and much freer and more prosperous. And like the North Korean government can't hide that information from its people. So how does it continue to have a reason to justify its own existence as the separate North Korean state? And the answer that Kim Jong-il, who is Kim Jong-un's father, landed on in the 90s is something that he called the Songun or military first policy, which is basically this big lie they tell the people, which is that they are under constant threat of war from the terrifying Yankee imperialists who are going to come any second to destroy them. And so they have to fight this like never ending battle. And it really works. It's really effective because you get this like rally around the flag nationalism against the external enemy. And then you can justify to your own people like, well, you're poor because we have to pay for this giant military to stave off the threat. Um, and it has kept this regime impossibly stable for the last 25 years. But the thing is, is that means they have to keep up the reality of this like near conflict, super high tensions. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because by creating that situation, they create more of an incentive for states like South Korea, Japan, and the United States to want to get rid of North Korea. And I think that that brings up something else, which is that after the Cold War ended, North Korea was extremely poor. They experienced a catastrophic famine. A really large percent of the country died. I think some estimates it's five to ten percent. Yeah, nobody knows for sure. Um, but, I mean, just huge. But that's I mean, that's just an absolute catastrophe. And it's worth noting that not only did the regime not collapse because of internal opposition, they also didn't open themselves politically to the rest of the world mm -hmm. to engage in the kind of ties or get the kind of aid that could have saved these people. And so they have shown themselves pretty credibly to be willing to sacrifice their own civilians. It's a strategic asset. It's yeah. a really powerful strategic asset, their willingness to accept risk. Yeah, which is, you know terribly dangerous if you are a North Korean citizen and quite dangerous if you are a citizen of another country, but a real asset to the regime there. Max and Amanda, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Facebook. It's been 25 years since lawmakers passed comprehensive internet regulations. But the internet has changed a lot since then. And it's time for an update. That's why Facebook supports updated internet regulations to set clear guidelines for addressing today's toughest challenges, like protecting privacy, fighting misinformation, reforming Section 230, and more. See their progress on key issues and what's next at about.fb.com regulations. In his speech to Congress on Tuesday night, President Trump turned for a moment and unexpectedly from illegal immigration to another form. Protecting our workers also means reforming our system of legal immigration. The current outdated system depresses wages for our poorest workers and puts great pressure on taxpayers. Nations around the world, like Canada, Australia, and many others, have a merit-based immigration system. Merit-based. 
It sounds distinctly American, but it's not at all what drives American immigration. Well, a merit-based immigration system is one that essentially prioritizes skills and employability over everything else. Julie Davis is a White House reporter. So we're talking about educational level, if you have an advanced degree, and potentially whether you have an employer sponsoring you. And sometimes the way it works is that all of those things I just mentioned are given sort of a point rating. Hmm. And um, the people who have the highest amount of points are the people who are at the top of the priority list. Obviously, every country that has net immigration has a long waiting list of people who want to get in. So a merit-based system essentially evaluates those people based on on those criteria. All right. So how does that merit-based system that assigns those points to skills and education differ from the immigration system in place now in the United States? Well, the immigration system that's been in place in the United States since essentially since 1965 is predominantly based on family ties. The vast majority of people that are admitted here under the legal immigration system are admitted on the basis of being related to a U.S. citizen and sponsored by them or a more distant relative of somebody who is already here legally. So the argument for a family-based immigration system seems very straightforward. So what's the argument against it? Well, the argument against it is, I think, the one that President Trump was trying to make uh, in his speech, which is... It's a basic principle that those seeking to enter a country ought to be able to support themselves financially. We are a country that should want for our immigrants to make this country better. We should want Americans to have good jobs and good wages, and we should put Americans first. It will save countless dollars, raise workers' wages, and help struggling families, including immigrant families, enter the middle class. And they will do it quickly, and they will be very, very happy indeed. And so it's been the case for a long time that employers in the United States feel like they don't have access to the labor pool that they need. And so I think there's broad support, theoretically, for rejiggering the system such that there are more immigrants coming in that fill gaps in the employment pool. And I I think that in and of itself is not a controversial idea. I think where the controversy comes in is when you start looking at the numbers and the people that you'd be denying the chance to stay with their families if you, in effect, took away some of these preferences and gave them over to employers and and skilled labor. Well, so let's talk about those numbers. Right now, what percentage of immigrants entering the U.S. are the family, the relatives of people who are already here? So it's about two-thirds of the people that are admitted legally into the United States as immigrants are either immediate relatives or more distant relatives of U.S. citizens or legal permanent residents. With all this conversation about immigration from him so far being so polarizing and pretty far to the right, I was so struck by the fact that in selling this idea in his speech to Congress, Trump pointed to Canada as an example of where this merit-based system is in place, because Canada is seen as really progressive, especially on immigration, at least to many Americans. Well, in Canada, it's a system that's been in place for almost as long as our family-based system has been in place. And it's a country that's, you know, one-tenth the size of the United States, and they admit more immigrants, I think it's about 160,000 a year, than the United States does under economic categories. So that's a fairly substantial difference. And the other thing that we saw in Canada last year as the Syrian refugee crisis Mm -hmm. was raging was that 
they also have a lot of refugees that they admit. But I think what we see is a, a much broader sort of degree of public support than we have here, where because it's so politically volatile, it's difficult to get consensus to change any one piece of it. So let's pretend that the U.S. under President Trump adopts this merit-based system of immigration. What nationalities of immigrants would we likely start to see more of and would we start to see less of? Well, I mean, many of the uh, immigrants who are here legally now um, and who have been here for a long time are either Mexican or Latin American immigrants, and many of them are Asian as well. Um, they've been steadily over the years bringing family members in, and if you were to all of a sudden tomorrow flip the switch so that you were limiting or eliminating altogether their ability to bring in family members, you'd be talking about less immigrants in general of color. And if you're mm. talking about high-skilled labor, if you're talking about people who know how to speak English or have been educated in the Western sciences that many employers will prioritize, you are probably looking at a whiter, more Western European group of immigrants. Does support or does opposition to this idea of merit-based versus family-based immigration does it neatly fall along party lines? Do Republicans tend to support the merit-based system and the Democrats tend to support the family, or is it messier? It's a little messier, but I would say in general, uh, this is a Republican idea. The last time this was a major component of an immigration overhaul, 10 years ago when George W. Bush was president, um, it was a get-tough border security bill that essentially legalized the 11 million undocumented immigrants mm -hmm. who were here and moved toward, in a pretty dramatic way, a high-skilled immigration system. And that was an idea that was a Republican idea that Democrats were willing to consider only because they were getting a large-scale legalization in return. But that plan ultimately fizzled. Cratered, more like, yes. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's politically, it's always been politically difficult, bordering on toxic. I don't think there's any reason to believe that that has changed. And certainly when you have a president like President Trump, who has spoken in such incendiary terms about immigration, it's difficult to imagine Democrats and the left wanting to make hard choices to come to the middle and meet him when there's so much suspicion about what his real motives and where his real priorities lay. I'm really struck by this thought that there are pretty much two narratives in the United States when it comes to immigration. One of them is that this is a place where anything is possible. You come here in pursuit of the American dream. It does not matter how much money or skill you have at the beginning. And the other narrative is that this is a meritocracy and that the best rise and that success is earned and it's rewarded. And this system that the president is now talking about seems to pit these two narratives against each other. Is that how you see it? It is. And I think it's fascinating because I think the answer is really both, right? I mean, when you hear the argument that President Trump is making, it's hard to disagree with the idea that we should want people to come here who are great and who share our priorities and share our values. Um, but when you look at the flip side of that, I think you see some uglier implications, like we shouldn't have people here who don't believe in the same things that we believe in, whether that's religion or otherwise. But yes, the, the United States is a meritocracy. And I don't think that anyone would argue that our immigration system should 
downplay that to the degree it looks like it does on paper, right? So it's a tension. And I think it's the reason why immigration reform has always been such an emotional issue in this country and a politically difficult one. And I think if we get anywhere close to it under President Trump, that tension's only going to get sharper. All right, Julie, thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Here's what else you need to know today. The Times is reporting that in the final hours of the Obama presidency, White House aides raced to preserve evidence that Russia had tried to undermine the U.S. election. Presidential staff were so worried that the incoming Trump administration would cover up or destroy intelligence about the meddling that they tried to ensure that the information was distributed to as many sources as possible, including foreign allies and members of Congress. And an update on a story from earlier this week about Juan Carlos Hernandez Pacheco, a restaurant owner in a small southern Illinois town who was detained by federal immigration officials on February 9th after living in the U.S. for 20 years without documentation. The town, which voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, has come out in support of Carlos. The mayor, the fire chief, the county prosecutor, and local business owners like Tim Grigsby wrote letters to the judge on Carlos's behalf. Truthfully, if we lose him, our community is going to have a hole in it that uh, will be very difficult to fill if we'll ever be able to fill it. Our colleague Monica Davey, who has been reporting on this story from the start, was at Carlos's immigration hearing on Wednesday afternoon. Carlos was released on bond this afternoon, and he's headed home to West Frankfurt. Did the judge in the case give a reason for why he allowed Carlos to become free on bond? Well, one thing he did was he talked about some of the letters he has received. Basically, he said you just don't usually see this sort of documentation. Did you have a chance to talk to Carlos once he was out? And if you did, what did he say? He told me that he was pretty amazed by the level of support that he had gotten from West Frankfurt. He said that he knew, you know, he knew he had friends. He wasn't um, surprised to know that he had some support. But I think he's been pretty bowled over by just how many people in that community stood up for him. And then I asked him about a question that I've gotten from lots of readers, which is how he felt about members of his own communities voting for Donald Trump and now coming forward and saying they support him, that, you know, did he blame them? Did Mm -hmm. he feel angry at them for having voted that way? And what did he say? He said he didn't feel that way at all. He felt like the people in his town hadn't voted on the issue of immigration because it's just not that big an issue for people there. He felt like they were voting on coal mining. And he said that he was happy that they had exercised their right to vote, that that was that was what democracy should be. Um, and that's really about all he said. He seemed tired and really, really anxious to get home to his family. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. Everyone likes shopping online, but searching for coupon codes is kind of a bummer. So make saving online a breeze with Capital One Shopping. 
Capital One Shopping is a free tool that instantly searches for available coupon codes and automatically applies them at checkout. Just download Capital One Shopping to your computer and let it do the work for you. So easy, and you don't even need a Capital One card to use it. Capital One Shopping, it's kind of genius. What's in your wallet? Savings and available coupons vary.